Close Source is brought to you with support from the following sustainable brands. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Gentle Vibes, a vintage shop for the psychedelic mind, formerly inside jeans and Hamtramck with a new Detroit location coming soon. Picnic Wear, a slow fashion brand made by hand in New York City from vintage and deadstock textiles. Picnic Wear strives for minimal waste, but maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Find Picnic Wear on Instagram at Picnic Wear, and that's wear, W-E-A-R, and at www.picnicwear.com. No Flight Back Vintage, bringing fun new life to old things. Always using recycled and secondhand materials to make dope-ass shit for dope-ass people. See more on Instagram at No Flight Back Vintage. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room all while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the Party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Wide-Eyed Vintage, truly covetable vintage curated in Minneapolis, Minnesota, giving each piece lifetimes of wear beyond the life it has already lived. See more on Instagram at wide underscore eyed underscore vintage. Shop Journal Vintage, specializing in upcycled, handmade, and vintage fashion for all genders. Owner Laura makes each piece by hand with love in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, with an emphasis on upcycled menswear, tie-dye, modern jewelry, cottagecore collars, and everything in between. Shop Journal makes pieces they love and hopes you will too. Getting dressed should always be fun. See more on Instagram at shop underscore journal. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer, but she is also a radical feminist micro business. She's the one woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the earth needs. The one woman band to help you build your own brand. She can take your fashion line from just a concept and do your sketches, pattern making, grading, sourcing, cutting, and sewing for you. Or option two is for those who aren't trying to start a business and who just want ethical garments. Gabriella will create custom made-to-measure garments just for you. Her goal is to help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. For inquiries about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. Old Flame Mending helps you keep your clothes intact through clothing repair, 
visible mending, and tailoring. Through extending the life of textiles, Old Flame Mending makes your pieces not only wearable and functional again, but also unique and beautiful. This mending duo is based in Pittsburgh, but they take mail-in mending orders from anywhere in the U.S. For more information, visit them at oldflamemending.com or follow them on Instagram at oldflamemending. Welcome to Close Wars, the podcast that implores you to please, please check the crotches of your pants before you try to resell them. You'll find out why later. (laughs) I'm your host, Amanda. Okay, anti-brunchers. Today's episode is going to be a little different than anything I've done before because it's going to be all about the Close Horse Hotline, a.k.a the best invention of 2020. (laughs) I've been getting a lot of calls from you, which I love, and I thought it would be awesome to talk about a bunch of your messages in like one big episode. Plus, it's kind of always been my dream to have a show where people call in for advice, sort of live, like an 80s radio show in a Lifetime movie. So this feels like one step in that direction. Well, sort of. I've also been recording some really great conversations with different listeners about their experiences in resale. So I have some of those in this episode too. You know, I just love the Close Horse Hotline because it gives me yet another way to connect with all of you. So we have a lot of people on this episode. Let's see. Today we'll include phone calls from Nikki, Elena, and Jillian. Then a longer conversation with Aslan about reselling pallets of Nordstrom returns. And lastly, a conversation with Haley about her experiences working at a resale shop franchise. And then after that, selling on Poshmark. So there's so much to do today. But first, it's time to thank the newest supporters on Patreon. You might have noticed some new businesses in the intro to this episode. First is Rebecca Harrison of Old Flame Mending in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And I'm super excited to have a mender on board. In fact, as I was recording the intro, I was like, I need to reach out to her and see if she will call into the hotline so we can talk about mending. So Rebecca, when you hear this, please message me because I would love to talk to you about some mending that people can do at home and other things related to mending. I know you all have questions. You message me about it all the time on Instagram. And I'm always like, well, I don't know, but I'll look into it. Anyway, maybe we can get some answers. Our second new patron is Gabriella Antonas, who is a designer and artist from Baltimore, Maryland. You'll be getting to know her more in an upcoming episode in a few weeks. So stay tuned. Thank you so much, Rebecca and Gabriella. If you, yes, you, I'm talking to you, have been thinking about joining the Patreon, now is a really good time because this month, in addition to all of the other usual rewards, you'll get a free Anti-Brunch Society pin and membership card. And guess what, everyone? This month's Patreon-exclusive episode, which will be coming later in the month, is all about Cabbage Patch Kids. (laughs) It's actually a crazy dramatic story which are my favorite kind. And I just wanted to give a shout out to Jenny of Late to the Party for kind of planting the seed for me. So thank you, Jenny. 
You can all thank her when you hear the sizzling story (laughs) of Cabbage Patch Kids. You can learn more about the Clothes Horse Patreon at patreon.com slash clothes horse podcast. Also, as always, if you want to support the show, but you just don't have the cash, which is most of us, right? You can support the pod by writing a review on Apple Podcasts. And then if you send me a screenshot of it, I'll send you an anti-brunch pin too. So don't worry. Anti-brunchers, it's not about the money. It's just about the community, right? And the lack of brunch. Just as a reminder, breakfast for dinner is totally fine (laughs) and encouraged. Okay, let's get into this extra special Clothes Horse Hotline episode. First up is a call from Nikki. Hi, Amanda. Um, My name is Nikki. I was just listening to your most recent podcast about um, fat phobia in the fashion industry, and I just thought it was really interesting because I currently am working for a small business in Bushwick. I mean, not Bushwick, Williamsburg, Brooklyn, and we make uh, one-size-fits-all kind of unisex clothing, and I do all of the sewing here, but I think it's really interesting because I went to FIT in Manhattan, and they completely disregarded any sort of grading education in their fashion design program or um, any sort of plus size. I think there was a plus size uh, specialization program before I came into the school, but I graduated in 2017, and it was completely not a thing. Um, Yeah, I just wanted to throw this into the conversation because I feel like a lot of people in the fashion industry who are up and coming now, they don't receive that sort of education that's required to to make um, clothes that are, you know, fitting for everyone. And I think the conversation needs to also center around, like, um, these institutions of education, like, not providing the things that people need and, like... Um, like, stores need to be providing, obviously, things that fit a multitude of people, but, like, yeah, also, institutions need to be educating people on how, like, it's just a, a whole circle of things. Um, anyway, I am obsessed with your podcast. I'm telling all of my friends about it constantly. I'm just like, oh, I was listening to a podcast this week. Um, and everyone knows that I'm just listening to your podcast. And I can't wait to support um, you on Patreon in the new year. Anyway, thank you for doing what you're doing, and I can't wait to hear more. I'm so glad Nikki called about this because it's actually been on my mind since our episode with Claire and kind of talking about her experiences in her fashion program. And so I kind of wanted an excuse to look into this a little bit more and talk about it. So thank you, Nikki. A report published by InStyle Magazine in February of this year revealed that only 22% of designers that showed at New York Fashion Week produced up to a size 20 or above. And remember, the average size American woman is a size 18. So automatically you're like, uh, who y'all making clothes for over there? (laughs) Because, I mean, job number one for all of us is to push existing brands and designers to make clothing in more sizes, right? And we all do that collectively by demanding and demanding and not shopping with brands that don't offer to dress more people, right? It's also, however, 
really important that the next generation of designers, that would be the people who are in school right now, they need to know how to grade and fit larger sizes properly. Because like we talked about with Claire, it's a totally different grade. It's a totally different approach. I mean, it's just it's just completely different. It's not about just adding a couple inches here and there. There's a learning curve there, right? Based on my research, it looks like some schools offer plus size design as like an elective, which means, you know, it's an optional class. It's not a part of the core requirements at any school that I could find, except for one that we're going to talk about in a minute. And while some schools will allow students to pursue plus size design as like an independent project. There are rarely plus size dress forms available. And some students have complained of pushback from instructors, sort of like, why are you even bothering? Which I mean, speaks to this, you know, what we talked about in the last episode, which is just this industry is fat phobic from top to bottom and everywhere in between. And that's extra upsetting to me that instructors, people who are training the next generation of fashion designers are kind of like, ew, don't bother. Like, that's not a good example. That doesn't change the world. Do we need to fire all of them too? All of this is even more complicated this year because most programs are now online only. So it's even more difficult to get that specialized training should you decide to pursue this more like independent study of plus size clothing. Schools like Drexel in Philadelphia have brought in speakers to talk about the need for extended sizing, but that's not really a program either. Basically, almost no one is leaving fashion school knowing how to design for plus size bodies because it's just not being prioritized. Schools are recognizing the need for it. I mean, they're talking about it, but it's not, they're not actually initiating anything. Like I feel like it's sort of like lip service more than anything else. FIT, FIDM, and Pratt have all said that they're aware of the issue and they're thinking about adding something. But the reality is it's just not happening. And robust training has to happen in design school in order to steer the future of the industry towards more inclusivity. So that's, it's like mostly bad news, right? I did read about an amazing program at Ryerson University in Toronto, which has a fashion study program centered on inclusivity of size, gender, and race. Everything that's not happening in every other fashion school right now. This is a quote from Ben Barry, best name, Ben Barry. He's the chair of the fashion program at Ryerson. He said, the conversation around plus size or fat fashion has been seen purely as a social justice issue and an activist issue. This is a business imperative for the fashion industry, which is, you know, what I've been saying, like, the fashion industry is struggling so hard to stay afloat. We've been talking about the retail apocalypse for years. And yes, there were other things at play there. But most importantly, these brands were overproducing for a market that was already super saturated, which is that like core straight sizing, if you will. While they could have been making all this money off of all these other people who don't get to buy any clothes. It's a business need to offer more sizes and therefore to teach people how to create them, right? Before students at Ryerson ever get to design, they're taught through readings, documentaries, guest speakers, 
coursework, you name it, about fat activism, they're taught about all the stereotypes regarding marginalized bodies in the industry. All of that education teaches them the significance and importance of inclusive fashion. I mean, it's amazing. Like, this is what all the schools need to do, right? Here's another quote from Ben Barry, once again, the chair of the fashion program at Ryerson. He said, if we're going to transform fashion education, we need to invite bodies around the table that bring in life experiences that have been marginalized and erased from fashion, because that will help us to really illuminate whose stories and whose bodies haven't been told. And I, this is like, oh, I love it so much because, you know, something that I've been saying over and over again is when you go into a lot of design offices, buying offices, when you look at the leadership teams at a lot of these brands and retailers, you see cis, white, thin people, often from a pretty privileged economic background. Well, who do these people then know how to dress? They only know how to dress one another. That's the crux of the problem, right? Is that they just... They don't know any other people and their biases are so deeply ingrained. And, you know, it's sort of like this feedback loop of like, if you only ever see thin, white, cis, wealthy people, then that's all you think exists in the world, right? It reinforces your biases of of anyone who's not like that. So why are you going to make clothes for them? When you think about it, changing the fashion industry and really just about any industry begins with this understanding of different kinds of people, and then you follow with the technical knowledge to design for them. So I would love to hear from all of you other designers in the audience. Like, what did you learn about plus-size design in school? Did you ever talk about, you know, anti-racism or classism or any of these other things? in school. I mean, I would love to hear about it. You know, I think it's planted the seed in my mind that maybe part of the problem is that fashion education isn't well-rounded enough, but I would love to hear what all of you have to say, because I didn't go to fashion school. So I'm merely speculating here. And I would also like to know how what you did or did not learn in fashion school has affected your job options since you've been out of school. And just going to issue a special shout out to Selena Sanders, who hopefully is listening. I know you've been a design school instructor, and I know you have a lot of ideas about what's missing from design education. So please reach out and tell us how you think it could be better. Okay. Well, next we have a message from Elena of Gooder Gift Guide. That's at Gooder Gift Guide on Instagram. And it's a guide to all kinds of amazing gifts from small, diverse businesses that are really the best places for you to spend your money this year if you're buying gifts. Hey, Amanda. So this is Elena again, and I'm calling because it's Friday, and we had a very exciting, buzzy day on the Instagram (laughs) in the slow fashion, I guess, community because multiple brands did drops. Um, Ace and Jake did a collab drop. Briar had their sample sale, Misha and Puff did whatever they do. Um, and we know there are lots of these slow fashion and other sustainable brands like Rudy Jude and East Fork and our favorite mystery, likely greenwashing underwear brand, Arc, uh, that sell with this drop model where they heavily promote it and then everything sells out in two minutes. Um, so I know that 
we have both shopped at least one of the brands I mentioned. I know several of your podcast guests are small makers who also sell with the drop model. But friends and I have been discussing, and there's been a lot of Instagram stories about this model um, and whether it mimics fast fashion and preys on FOMO um, to get us to buy and to overconsume. Um, I've actually heard that part of the problem is many of these brands use Shopify for their back end, uh, which doesn't have this option to, for customers to hold an item in their cart for five minutes. So some of the most interesting content I've seen on this is another Instagram person, um, Zoe Helen at Helen.Pollen. Uh, so she actually did a real and then an awesome story series today addressing this issue and asking some of the same questions. I don't know her, but maybe you and she could talk about this or you could uh, talk with some of your small maker friends about the best way that makers and brands can sell without creating FOMO and overconsumption. Maybe we're just stuck with drops forever. I don't know, but I definitely would love to hear more from people who have spent time thinking about this. Thanks so much. Okay. So first things first here. Yes. In fact, (laughs) I had to Google this. I had to know. Shopify does not allow customers to hold things in their cart for a few minutes while they continue shopping and then like move to checkout after that. You know, you might not realize this, but if you shop on say Nordstrom.com or Sephora or really any of the big e-commerce sites, when you put stuff in your cart, it's kind of reserved for you. And that's to prevent you from checking out and then getting a message like, oops, your item sold out. Some websites, like I feel like ASOS is one of these will tell you that you have like an hour or something before they take it out of your cart and they'll kind of count it down for you. Shopify doesn't let you do that at all. And I went down like a whole rabbit hole of forums about this because so many business owners are asking for this feature. And in every one of these threads, Shopify was being kind of snarky in response. And I want to add here before we move on that I frequently feel as if Shopify is developing like a monopoly in terms of small business hosting, you know, much like PayPal has for the most part dominated payments. Remember, they also own Venmo and Etsy kind of owns vintage and crafts. When one company owns an entire sector of business, they can control all of the terms of it, including the fees and the functionality. So it's terrible for both small businesses and customers. I've been actually thinking through this new business plan that would be a platform for small makers and designers, as well as small boutiques and vintage sellers to sell on, right? Which you're like, oh, that stuff already exists, but this would be really good because for one, you would have to be vetted. Like, are you an asshole? <laughs> okay, we'll get out of here. But like, do you pay a living wage to your workers? Tell me why your business is sustainable. Like there'd be sort of like, I don't know, like a code of conduct sort of for all the sellers. And it would be well curated. So it wouldn't be like Etsy, which is like everything ever, right? In addition to that, the business experts 
on staff like myself, we'd help give you advice on growing your business, help you afford and utilize more sustainable packaging and delivery options, all kinds of stuff like that. It's been kind of on my mind as I've seen how Shopify and Etsy are not being very good to the sellers. I mean, the sellers are what made them, right? But this is what happens when you get a lot more VC investment coming in, your priorities change, right? Anyway, if you know someone who is, you know, a tech person, (laughs) like an engineer, I guess, uh, who would be interested in talking to me about something like that, please connect me with them because I have like the biz knowledge, but I don't know how to do internet. (laughs) So please, anyway, I'm just saying that out loud because I've been thinking about it for a while. And one of my friends was like, you should tell the Clothes Horse listeners because maybe one of them is the person you're looking for. (laughs) Anyway, back to Elena's call. So let's think about slow fashion for a moment. In most cases, you have limited materials, right? Because one, you're not overproducing materials. So you're kind of just buying a set amount. You know, you're not creating some sales plan that has you like doubling your sales and therefore having you buy all these extra materials that you don't need, right? And you also, these slow fashion brands tend to be small businesses. They can't afford to buy a ton of materials. So it's it's a very limited quantity. And it, you know, it helps them mitigate their risk. They're not going to be stuck with leftovers, right? Okay, so there's limited materials, but that means that you have to do more drops to build your business and increase sales. You know, like if this run of fabric only makes 100 dresses and you need to sell 400 dresses this month to pay your bills, then you're going to have to do four drops. So I, th- I think about that a lot. You know, we've had guests on this show who are also experiencing a very limited set of materials, right? Like Danny from Picnic Wear, it's kind of like she has the towels. She doesn't have the towels. She has them again, but they're always going to be different. It's not going to be the same product all the time, right? Or Selena with all of her tea towels and quilts and blankets and everything. Like she also can't mass produce anything anyway. So she also has to do these drops, right? On a larger scale, I think of someone like Big Bud Press, who is more like, hey, we're running this fabric. We only have enough for this. That's the money we have, right? They do a pretty decent amount of drops. I mean, some months it seems like there's been new stuff every week. Other times, maybe not. And it kind of, it builds this excitement, actually. And this is something that for the larger retailers I've worked for, we have talked about a lot. How could we create a fake sense of scarcity? Because... When you, the customer, know something is going to run out, you don't think about it as hard. You just buy it. It's kind of going back to this idea of FOMO that Elena is talking about. We see it with like someone like Supreme, where people are literally waiting in line all night to get something from Supreme, you know, because they know they're going to run out. Uh, I myself have set an alarm on my phone so that I could get something from Big Bud Press before it sold out, you know, like... It, it works on all of us. I remember back when uh, Kylie Jenner was doing all those, I mean, I guess she still does the lip stuff, but for a while it was like very scarce and they would constantly sell out. Well, the rumors out there were that actually she might only put 1,000 lip glosses up on the site to sell on one day, but there was really 10,000 in the warehouse. They were just creating 
this fake sense of scarcity to get people to just spend it immediately, right? Not think about it. And then if you add in that idea that Shopify won't even hold your cart, that would make you act even faster as a customer, right? Like you don't have any time to hesitate, to shop around for a better deal, to make sure you have the money to cover it, to think about your budget, nothing. You just have to push pay, right? This drop model, as you can see, is kind of necessitated by both like the materials availability and the size of these businesses, but it does kind of mimic fast fashion. Like I can see that. I don't think it's intentional. I mean, when I think about like at Nasty Gal, when we would talk about just putting 20 units of something on the site so people would lose their mind and think it was sold out, this isn't the same thing. This is legitimately like, this is all the fabric we have. This is all we were able to make. This is real scarcity, but it does mimic that thoughtless consumption of fast fashion because there's no time to think about it. We can't let FOMO dictate our shopping habits, right? For the same reason we can't let FOMO make us go on vacation right now during a pandemic or have a party right now. FOMO and the like thoughtless consumption of fast fashion are so intrinsically linked. Like it's that fear of missing out that makes you buy an outfit to wear only one time on Instagram, right? FOMO makes you buy super trendy stuff that you're going to wear once or twice or never at all. This is a really tough one for me to answer, Elena, because on one hand, I understand why these companies and brands and makers don't have a lot of inventory to sell you. And I understand that they need to be constantly making stuff to stay in business. So I guess what I would say is they don't deserve, I don't know, our judgment in this situation. But I do think that we as customers need to rein it in because you know, like for example, using Big Bud Press, a place I love, like I can't buy a jumpsuit from them every week or I would be like having to declare bankruptcy. Like I have to really think about, yes, there's more stuff coming next week that will sell out immediately and might never come back. But is that 100% what I want? You know, I know that the day it goes on sale, I can't do my trick of opening it on the site and then thinking about it for a couple hours because it will be gone. So maybe I can really follow them on social, see what's coming, think about it a lot more before then. And in most cases, I'll probably talk myself out of it. I guess I guess that's the best advice I can give everyone who's listening to this. Like, don't let FOMO make you buy dumb stuff, you know? Like, yeah, because guess what? You're going to miss out on things. We all do. That's okay. There's always more coming down the road. I would love to hear from all of the small makers out there what you think of all of this. One, do you think Shopify sucks? <laughs> and two, I would love to hear more of sort of why you operate using this like drop model. Okay, next we have a call from Jillian. Hi, Amanda. It's Jillian. Um I had a little something on my mind that I wanted to call and leave a message about. The other day I was talking to a friend of mine who's going to have a baby soon, and we started talking about cloth diapers, and um, that kind of got the gears moving in my mind about um, just kind of a bunch of things that are going on right now that 
there's a disposable version of as well as sort of a cloth, um, potentially reusable version of um, some of the other ones that came to mind are, of course, COVID masks and um, menstrual cups or thinks, undergarments, which oh, I feel like a couple of years back, there was a little bit of a flap about somebody who worked at thinks, which perhaps you um might be able to get to the bottom of. But anyway, I just I just wondered what the kind of um the analysis of the cost of, you know, like laundering and um caring for these items would be versus um you know buying and throwing away the disposable version. I'm assuming that ultimately it's better to have the um the versions that can be um kept and maintained. Um but I was just wondering if you could maybe find any figures on that because I feel like that'd be a real eye opener and might uh get some of us making a couple of shifts in our um personal care choices. Thanks for doing what you do. Love you. There has been a cloth versus disposable diaper debate going on for literally decades. In the 90s, the conversation was sort of like, okay, actually, it uses more energy to wash and dry diapers than it does to make them. This was in a different time, right, when we weren't really thinking about carbon footprint in the same way. But a recent UK-based study found that the amount of carbon dioxide produced by using disposable diapers for two and a half years would be less than the carbon output of laundering reusables. Even when you consider that all of these disposables end up in landfills, experts on low-carbon living argue that the environmental impact might still be less than using biodegradable diapers or even cloth diapers. I know. I mean, this is like crazy, you know? Now, you could wash all the diapers in cold water, although good luck, there's poop involved, right? And then you could line dry them, and that would decrease the carbon footprint, but it would also mean probably having to own a lot more cloth diapers to account for all that drying and washing time. And of course, you would be investing a lot more of your own time in the line drying and whatnot. Well, your time has a value too. So the overall cost is just a lot higher, which brings me to the next thing that I think is really important when we talk about disposables versus reusables. Your personal experience is really going to dictate what's affordable for you. And I mean affordable in both literal ways and more figurative ways. When I was a broke single mother, I used disposable diapers and it was shocking to people because I was known to be quite crunchy. But for one, I didn't have a laundry machine in my building. So where was I going to be washing diapers, right? Two, I had no time to deal with all that laundry because I was always working or cooking or cleaning. And I did want to spend just a little bit time sleeping and or hanging out with my daughter, right? And three, and this is really important because this comes back in a lot of other reusable categories, the startup costs of cloth diapers were incredibly out of reach for me. And they would be for a lot of low-income people. Like you can't gradually buy reusable diapers. You kind of need a ton way up front, especially with small babies. You're changing them constantly. I mean, ultimately, whether you use cloth diapers or disposable diapers is a personal choice. What's best for you in terms of your time and money, right? COVID masks are another one, right? Like, I don't want to tell people what is the best choice for them. You know, I personally get really stressed out about all the disposable masks I see all over the streets, literally all over the streets and in parking lots. 
And then I think about all the masks on the way to the landfills or in the ocean right now. And I, you know, I get kind of sweaty. There's been a lot of speculation about the efficacy of reusable masks. So that's why I say it's a personal choice. In my household, we use reusable masks. We wear them only once. I wash them in warm water and then I hang them outside to dry because I like to hope that the sun and the fresh air will do any final disinfecting that the wash didn't catch. Also, if I'm going to be out of the house for a few hours, which doesn't happen that often, but when we were moving was happening a lot, I would bring a pile of masks along with me and change every hour because when they get damp from your mouth, they're less effective. Once again, this may not be the right option for you, especially if you don't have a washing machine. So do what's right for you. The most important thing is that you should be wearing a mask, right? Okay, so now let's talk about menstrual cups and thinks. So Jillian does mention the thinks drama, which is they had a terrible CEO who called herself a CEO. Her name was Mickey Agarwal. Uh, she was pushed out a couple years ago. I mean, for all kinds of horrible, horrible behavior, including sexual harassment of male and female employees, literally grabbing the breasts of female employees, and all kinds of just egregious, toxic, horrible, bullying behavior. We actually talk about it a little bit in the department episodes about Girl Boss. She actually runs the company now, and she started it, uh, Tushy, which are uh, like bidet attachments, and I, I get ads for them constantly. So who knows if things are going better over at Tushy. I haven't heard anything. Let's first talk about the cost of reusable period products versus disposable. I would say for menstrual cups, menstrual sponges, and period underwear, there is a slightly higher upfront cost, but they do pay for themselves in the short term. And I actually, one of the menstrual cups I use is from a company called June, and it was only $6. I am enjoying this menstrual cup as you know, much as you could enjoy one. <laughs> I would recommend it. I made this decision primarily because, you know, like I said, I'm crunchy, and I was very concerned about all, I would envision, seriously, all of the tampons I'd used in my whole life stacked up behind me. I mean, it was just... It was disturbing to me. In 2018 alone, people in the U.S. bought 5.8 billion tampons. And over the course of a lifetime, one woman will use somewhere between 5 and 15,000 pads and tampons, the vast majority of which will end up in landfills as plastic waste. Because, like, think about it. Tampons come wrapped in plastic. They're encased in plastic applicators with plastic strings dangling from one end. And many of them even include a thin layer of plastic in the absorbent parts, which is like a plastic party. Pads actually incorporate even more plastic from the leak-proof base to the synthetics that soak up fluid to, you know, the packaging. But once again, shifting away from these disposables to reusable is all about what feels right for you. For one, it might just be too gross or weird for you, and that's totally fine. You might have a job that doesn't have a private bathroom, so you might feel kind of uncomfortable emptying your cup at work. That was a concern for me. <laughs> or maybe it's just like not physically comfortable for you. Different brands have different shapes. 
both in terms of cups and the period underwear, but it would, it might be too expensive to be buying different brands to find the right fit for you. Right. I, like I said, did switch to a cup and it was a game changer for me, but there was a learning curve and I'm glad I've been trapped in the house for months while I get it right. That's all I can say. So if you are going to try something new in that realm, this could be a good time while we're all at home. Once again, it's all about what's right for you in anything that is reusable versus disposable. But each thing that we can chip away is a little bit of progress towards a less wasteful way of life, right? It's not about the perfection. It's about progress. So every little thing we do gets us a little bit closer. But also, don't sacrifice your quality of life, you know? Pick what's right for you. Okay, next we're going to talk to Aslan. So she reached out to me a few weeks ago via email. And when she mentioned that she was reselling Nordstrom returns, I got so excited. I was like, please, I have so many questions for you. Can we talk? Now, as I mentioned in our conversation, 30 to 40% of all online purchases are returned. And as we talked about like a million episodes ago, it was way back in the beginning, a lot of these returns don't go back into the inventory for the brand to resell. While there's no hard numbers around it, it seems like it's a very significant percentage. Why? Why don't they just put these away? It doesn't make any sense, right? Well, it's because... In the eyes of the retailer, it's way too expensive to pay for the manpower to receive the returns, open them up, inspect the garments, wrap them in new poly bags, and then return them to the shelves. So what happens to this stuff is it might go straight to the landfill. It might be sold off in lots to resellers. But even if that happens and it gets the second chance at life, these things tend to move around quite a bit from warehouse to warehouse and, you know, They might sell them off to one jobber who sells them off to the small accounts. It's like the carbon footprints of these individual items just increase exponentially. So even when something gets resold, it's still, it's not a great situation, right? And all the big guys are doing this, including Nordstrom, as we're going to talk about, but I can assure you Amazon is a huge part of this. Basically any chain retailer you can think of is selling off or destroying returns or doing both. So I'm going to play with my conversation with Aslan. And then she called back a second time with just like a little more info. And so that message will immediately follow our conversation. Well, I'm excited to talk to you today about resale. I guess that's kind of what you're doing. What would you call it? Yeah, I I would say it's like a very hobbyist version of reselling. (laughs) Definitely, there's some people who do it full time for their career, and I'm definitely not in that boat. It was kind of uh, taking thrifting is definitely my favorite hobby, and when I realized I could be making a buck or two off of it, I was like, "Ooh, sign me up!" So, well, why don't you? Because you know, I'm going to put this in the episode. Why don't you introduce yourself, say where you're from, and you know, like what you do in your day to day life. So I'm Aslan. I'm originally from the Oregon coast, and I am a full-time college student right now. That's how I really got into um, thrifting. We're talking about reselling and thrifting. 
I go to college in Michigan where the winters oh, are wow. very cold and very dark. Yeah, that's so, so different from Astoria where you're from. It is. It's very different. <laughs> Absolutely. Kind of a little bit of a culture shock, which you wouldn't really expect, or at least I was naive enough not to expect the culture to be as different as it is. But, yeah, definitely. Um, but, <laughs> so I definitely found thrifting more so through – you know, being a college student, falling on a budget, <laughs> the area that I live in is definitely like a summertime haven. So it gets a huge influx of uh, tourists, both where I live um, in Astoria, but I'm talking about Michigan. Sorry, thought I'd clear that up. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, the town I go to college in in Michigan, huge influx of summertime tourists, and the thrift stores there are so like good. Not huge. I'm not finding Gucci or Louis Vuitton or anything like that, but definitely higher end brands. And so, um, wow. Yeah, I started. I guess watching like thrift hauls on YouTube. I know that sounds kind of sad. But <laughs> when I no, they're like, really. They're really popular. They, they suck me in. Like, yeah. I sit there for two hours and be, did I really just waste two hours watching what other people found? <laughs> but I'm guilty. I started more like for style, like finding really cool pieces that spoke to me. Definitely, I'm a sweater fiend. So all the big sweaters, I was just like, yep, yep. And then slowly YouTube started suggesting me these resellers, these people who do it full time for their living, like, which blew my mind. And then I didn't know much about brands, like, before these videos. I grew up in a town, like, where that just doesn't really matter. We're so far removed from any city that I just was oblivious to the whole brand name culture that there mm-hmm. is. And... So I started learning more brand names, and I started noticing, like, I would find an Eileen Fisher from people, like, oh, people are saying that's good. You can make money off of these pieces, which they just look like, you know, normal clothes to me. But once you realize that there is a resale potential there. So I came home after my freshman year of college. I just looked at my closet. And I'm like, oh, I don't really wear this anymore. I don't really wear this anymore. And I started just reselling the stuff I owned. Mm-hmm. I, at this point, hadn't thrifted anything for the intent of reselling it. But then, yeah, I started making a few small dollars selling stuff from my closet. And so I started getting a little more brave and picking up something that maybe wasn't in my size or knew that I would maybe wear it once or twice for a special occasion, but then I could send it somewhere else, uh-huh. a better home. And then, yeah, that led to this quarantine season, if you will. <laughs> season. Um, <laughs> Nordstrom boxes and kind of digging in to that, which I also found out about through YouTube. I'm going to tell you that, like, since you mentioned this to me in your email, I've noticed that a lot of different services are doing this now. There's like, a lot, yeah. Yeah, and so it's really, really interesting. So so tell me how you got into it and how it works. I flew back home at the beginning of the pandemic as soon as my college closed down in Michigan. So I'm in small town, Oregon, just mm-hmm. not leaving the house at all. I really miss thrifting like that. I hate to say that's like a personality trait I have, 
but it was definitely one of my like daily activities to this show. And so I'm watching these other resellers who depend on um, reselling as like their actual income. For me, it was just kind of fun money, if you will. I kind of consider myself more like a personal shopper rather than <laughs> someone who did this full time. Um, but they started getting into pallets because they're thinking, oh, my, my income's going away if I can't go out and source. And so it's kind of following along. Um, I noticed that in the resellers I follow on social media that not a lot of them jumped in right away, but I'm, I was so curious about it. I'm like, so you're telling me I can get guaranteed like Nordstrom brands, like the brands Nordstrom carries and take out that digging factor through a thrift store. I can just know kind of the caliber of brands mm-hmm, I'm mm-hmm. going to be getting. So that really had me intrigued. And then I started digging around the internet and found out that for a lot of these services, you need a reseller license, mm-hmm. which I suppose would have been easy enough to get. But <laughs> just the fact of having an official reselling business, that sounds maybe a little in-depth for me right now. But yeah. there were a few places I found um, that you didn't need a retailer license. The quantities are smaller, um, but for me being a one-woman show here, that wasn't necessarily a bad thing either. Right. So there's a lot of digging around, though. There's so many different sites, and some of them, they'll give you a manifest, so you know everything that should be in there. Some of them, it's a blind, just kind of cross your fingers and toes that it turns out okay. And then there's a lot of, like, Target brands. Some websites, like, pretty much just had, like, Target and Amazon. Some places had maybe, like, lower-end department store stuff. So it would be Nordstrom, but it'd be, like, the smaller brands they carried. Mm-hmm. And then, um, I ended up finding this website that's kind of like an eBay, but just for liquidation lots. So they carried everything from electronics to clothing to home goods even. And so I kind of got deep down in the rabbit hole there. And I found this one seller that I noticed consistently had decent lots. And then I, being a college student and seeing these lots go for a couple hundred dollars, I was very hesitant. It was a big investment for me, especially not knowing. I um, found a few reviews on YouTube and Google, and some of them were like, this is terrible. Do not do this. This stuff, you'll be disappointed in it. And then when I actually found two, like, unboxing videos, if you were, you could tell that definitely most of these lots are returns, and it will tell you that. It will tell you whether it's a shelf pull lot, a return lot, or a um, salvage lot. So the shelf pulls are kind of like, it was on the floor, but it didn't sell. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. they pulled it for this liquidation. And then I was doing customer returns. So for whatever reason, which is kind of scary as um, a buyer, you don't know why someone returned it. Is it a product defect or is it just that it didn't fit? Right, um, right. Well, you know, which, 30%, sometimes 30 to 40% of all the stuff people buy online gets returned. So it's, it's like crazy. It's crazy. And I mean, like, I'm not going to lie. I've been a serial returner in my past. Order 15 things, keep two. And then I found out 
that like they weren't just putting this stuff away and letting someone else buy it. And it like yeah. made my brain explode. You know? <laughs> no, it's so crazy. I'm, I'm, it's terrible, but I'm a lazy returner. I'm just, is it worth it? Am I going to use it at some point? And if it's yes, then I normally end up keeping it. Don't shop online or new things very often. So when I do, I typically have a decent idea. Yeah, totally. What I want. But totally. Yeah, so I was just hoping that people were like me and just it didn't fit or buyers or more than returning it. So I I went big the first lots I uh, bought. I got two. And I think it was like somewhere around 150 to 200 items between the two. Wow. That's a lot. (laughs) It is. And what's kind of with the first two, I know I just went into it. Should I have done a little bit less? Probably. But it's my dad. I'm not sure if it's the right term, but it's just like that almost addicting the bidding and getting into a bidding war with someone. It's like $10 increments these lots are going up each bid. And it's like, I kind of had my margins figured out. Like, okay, um, on the platform I sell on, I'll make this much after fees. So I kind of want my average cost of goods to be around, you know, X dollars for me. And personally, it was five to eight, depending on the lot. The mm-hmm. lots I found were manifested. Um, thankfully, I don't think I would have pulled the trigger if it wasn't manifested. So you knew um, what you were going to get before, when you bid. Typically, they have a 10% variance allowance. Um, but, yeah, theoretically, I had a decent idea of the actual products I was getting. It was more so the condition they're going to be in that was mm-hmm. in question. Yeah, I definitely – did more than I probably should have for those uh, first two lots. It doesn't sound like that much to me. Like, I don't know, 5 to $8 a piece is like, I mean, well, you're going to tell me how much this really sells for. So I might be totally delusional. I'm imagining everything is going to sell for $30, but that's probably not true, right? Definitely there was really good stuff in them um, in those first two lots. Do you mind if I actually pull up my spreadsheets really quick? Somehow? No, I mean, because I have, like, so many questions, like, what kind of stuff did you get? What stuff worked? What stuff didn't? Because I, I know, I mean, I only know a little bit. Like, I've sold on Poshmark, basically, just stuff of my own that I was, like, I'm cleaning out my closet, right? So you're going to be, like, the first person I've talked to who's actually reselling, like, these lots. And the little bit of reading I did around the Internet was basically, like, you win some, you lose some. Like, some stuff sells really well and some stuff just doesn't and you kind of are just like making deals with people on Poshmark but I have I'm obsessed with this I have so many questions I will try my best to answer all of them sometimes I feel like I kind of have almost like I'm so far removed from the day in day out reselling community that maybe that little bit of distance is nice I think it'd be so much fun to get into the bigger lots because, like, I wasn't, like, getting Gucci or Louis Vuitton, or I don't think Louis Vuitton sells that Nordstrom, but I wasn't getting any of those luxury caliber items in my lot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, where some of the resellers I follow where their entire business is built around these large 1,000-item, 2,000-item palettes, they do get those luxury brands. 
I mean, it's few and far between, but if you spend, you know, $10,000 on a pallet and, you know, you can make like a grand or two grand off of one purse you get in there, that's a calculated risk, you know? Yeah, yeah. Definitely the potential is there, but it is a gamble because a lot of the bigger lots that I've found mind you, a lot of information I can't access because I don't have that reseller license, but from everything I could find on my own, um, it seems that a lot of those larger pallets are unmanifested. It's pretty much you get what you get. Oof. Here's kind of the expected MSRP of uh-huh. the plot as a whole, but MSRP only means so much. I mean, sure, they say something's going to sell for 200 but the resale value is maybe 30 yeah, so, yeah. So it looks like in my first lot, I got the highest item, like the highest MSRP priced item was a pair of Reagan bone jeans. Ooh, wow. Yeah, so um, some of the brands was like Reagan bone, um, Sweaty Buddy, which is a like very fancy athletic brand that I didn't know about before these uh, <laughs> but now I do. Um, got some free people, good American, aloe, made well. So nothing like too incredibly expensive, but definitely that good mid-range. Mm-hmm. Like, I was definitely, for 5 to $8 cost of goods, those I was making money on for sure. And then in the second box, my best item was a tibby skirt, and that one actually ended up being new with tags which isn't guaranteed, but I was so happy with that. Yeah. Because that's one of the few items that still has not sold. And that just, knowing the resale market, I'm still learning it. Mm -hmm. Because you think, okay, here's the skirt. It's brand new with tags, retail $300. And you have it listed. And I sent out offers as low as, like, 20 bucks on it because I got points where I'm like I don't even want to look at you like just wow on the box as a whole and I can't get rid of it it's something I can't get rid of it it just likes me I guess I will say when I am looking just like sort of idly looking through Poshmark I see so much stuff on there that is so unappealing to me but I mm-hmm. know the people who are listing it, especially if one of these people who have these, like, huge shops, and you can tell that, like, this is how they make their living. They know what they're doing way better than I know. I'm always like, wow, so that's what people are really buying on Poshmark. Like, that's, those people know. And so sometimes, like, the more, like, cult brands, things that might seem really luxurious to us just don't seem to sell on there. Right. It's so, so um- interesting. It is, because Poshmark especially is very brand-driven. It is, I have found at least, extremely difficult to sell, like, vintage or something Mm -hmm. without a size tag or something that just doesn't have a brand. Yeah. It's so hard to get that foot traffic to your items. And then you have to find this perfect marriage between brand and also style, because, like you are saying, if it isn't cute, it's not going to move no matter how low you price it, especially with Poshmark's $7 shipping, I think it's up to now. Which yeah, it's is so a lot. much. It's, it's so much. Lot. I feel like the shipping uh, kind of hurts the sellers because 
you know, when you're a shopper, you're like $7 on top of this cost only seems like a lot higher. And so you want a better deal. And so really who ends up losing money is the seller. Right. And exactly. Um, sellers have the option to offer free shipping as well, but it all comes from their profit. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I know I would shop on Poshmark a lot more if it was free shipping or at least reduced shipping. Because yeah. pretty much I have to find one closet that has four to five <laughs> items that I like for me to really be able to justify it. It's like, okay, right. that's only a dollar or two per item. Right. Okay. Yeah, uh, yeah. So is that where you sell most of your stuff? Is it on Poshmark? Yeah, I've also um, dabbled around with eBay and ThreadUp as well. Mm -hmm. Each one of them has such a different customer base. Oh, my gosh, you sure. It's crazy. I can post something on Poshmark, and Poshmark's very labor-intensive, too. Like, mm-hmm. for it to get noticed, you're constantly having to share your listings. You have to make sure and have the right keywords in there. But really sharing is mm-hmm. the name of the game on Poshmark because it bumps it up to the top. Where on mm-hmm. eBay, you can just list something, and then it's 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 happy there. It's just chilling, waiting to be found. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I mean, for you, which have you found to be the most successful sort of outlet for selling? Um. Poshmark, to me, the interface is a bit more user-friendly. It's very kind of cut and dry. Here's what you need to do. eBay requires a lot more, like, keywords and different fields to be filled in. So mm-hmm. it's it's more labor-intensive listing on eBay, but then your trade-off is you don't have to touch it past that, really, unless you want to discount your item. Yeah, that's so, true. That's a really, really good point. Yeah, so, I'm just more comfortable with Poshmark, I guess. Well, and it's kind of easier. I mean, when you're selling, like, the shipping could not be easier. Right. I feel like that's what you pay that premium for. Email you a label and yeah. print it out and slap it on. So, yeah. what in your in your experience, what is the best what is the best performing stuff for you? Honestly, it's um, athletic wear and athleisure, personally. No like, way. Like, out of those boxes, my very first item I sold from those boxes was a pair of aloe sweatpants. No way. I mean, yeah, I guess they didn't even, quarantine. Wow. Yeah, they didn't have tags on it whatsoever. Like, so I'm selling it as a used item. Right. You know, yeah. It's a used item. And, I mean, I, I know this is – I feel like talking about reselling – Kind of nowadays, I've heard so many arguments that it's unethical or all that, but those sold for $55 within, like, eight hours of listing them. Wow. A pair of used sweatpants. I'm in awe. I'm really – obviously, that was the right price to the buyer or else mm-hmm. they wouldn't have purchased it. But mm-hmm. me being the cheap, frugal person I am, I'm like, that's crazy. That's- <laughs> Yeah, I hear that. You know, when people talk about reselling being unethical, those people, in my opinion, are basically, they're not understanding the true value of clothing. Like, you're coming from this approach that as soon as something's not brand new anymore, that it should be valueless and therefore, like, free, I guess. And I just don't think that's true. And I am actually really excited 
that there's a huge resale market and more and more people are buying secondhand because it helps people see the true value of clothing. You know what I mean? Like, like you're saying someone wouldn't have bought those sweatpants for $55 if it felt like you were scamming them. Right. No, totally. And another argument I hear a lot when it comes to the ethics of thrifting for the purpose of reselling is I hear a lot that thrift stores are intended for poor or needy people and that you're taking away from them. But I've witnessed thrift stores dump clothes into a trash can. Like, (sighs) if you've ever gone to the bins, like, at the bins, as soon as that goes off the floor, it's getting tossed. Totally. I don't think there's a scarcity. Uh, There's definitely not. (laughs) And I think these, like, Goodwill especially, they – Sure, they ha- do have their mission, but the actual thrift stores themselves is just a business making money off of goods they got for free. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I think, I don't know. I mean, yeah, you know what? Sometimes I'll be thrifting and I'll look one aisle over and there's someone who has a cart full of like all the raddest stuff that was in the thrift store that day. And I know they're going to resell it. And for a moment, I'm kind of annoyed. And then I'm like, no way. That's fucking awesome. You know? Make a living doing that. I love it. <laughs> I, I wish I could get to that level, honestly. Just, I mean, and it's work. I, it is I'm work. I'm a hobbyist in it, but to constantly source the goods, which you have to pay yourself for your time if you're That's treating right. it as a job, and then to take measurements, photograph the items, list the items, and then if you're selling on Poshmark to continually share it, I, I understand why people might mark items up or try and get the high end of the comps. Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. a lot of work that goes into it. Well, and I'm really grateful for people like you who are buying these like lots, these returns and whatnot, because otherwise those go to the landfill. Mm-hmm. Like you're actually doing a service by sort of digging through all of this and finding the treasure and bringing it to people's attention because much like thrifting, even though for, like, you and me and a lot of our friends and whatnot, like, thrifting is, like, part of our lives, right? Like, Absolutely, like it's just, like, yeah. what we do, right? It's there almost is... all of the birthday cards I get at this point. It's, hope you thrift something fun today. <laughs> totally, totally. But, like, you know, and I, we, like, kind of exist in that bubble, right? I think also, like, in the Pacific Northwest specifically, thrifting is so much more mainstream than it is in a lot of other places because, like, everyone thrifts. In Portland, you know, uh, and you know, like my, my parents live in Salem and they thrift, you know what I mean? Like, (laughs) it's so much more mainstream, but most people won't actually go to a thrift store. You know what I mean? I was that way until I was 18. I thought thrift stores made me uncomfortable. Like I would seriously get like the heebie-jeebies walking into a thrift store and I was like, Ooh, why would I want to wear like, someone else's stuff and then just one day I'm like well I borrow my friend's clothes I eat <laughs> off of dinner plates at restaurants that other people have ate off of yeah is this like such a big deal in my head and then the more videos I watched where I saw what people were getting from thrift stores I'm like okay I just need to get over this and as soon as I did I was like 
I was off the deep end. I loved it so much. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's really addictive. It's something we talk about a lot, actually, in my household. I've kind of become the advocate in my family where I started thrifting for everyone else because, honestly, any excuse. I'm like, oh, do you need something? Do, do you? Okay, I'll just go and grab that really quick. Let's see if it's there. So, like, my dad's <laughs> dress shirts I started thrifting. And then nice. Nice. My um, nieces and nephews who are still elementary school age, so they're going through clothes like crazy. And so it's like, oh, I'll just run to, I'll drive the two hours into Portland and go to the bins and just load up for you guys. Let's just get an entire year's worth of stuff. And as I drop things off or give people secondhand goods, I'm like, oh, here's a little fact about what it takes to produce clothes. And don't you feel so much better now that you got it secondhand? (laughs) No, it's true. You know, it's funny when you start like really thrifting, you're, you're like, why would you ever buy brand new Christmas right. decorations? Or like, why would you ever buy new dishes? Like, it's all there and it's like awesome, you know? And that was what was so crazy about these boxes to me is that they're practically brand new goods. They came from, you know, someone who either returned them, but they didn't have this big, long cycle in someone's closet. And like you said, it's saving it from the landfill. Mm-hmm. It was crazy to, or yeah, I feel like I keep saying that, but it blows my mind all the time that people just go through clothes so often and that they toss things. And I mean, some of the pieces I got with the um, condition of them, like I said, some of them were new tags. Yeah, mm-hmm. There was some gross stuff in there, too, and that really opened my eyes about how other people treat clothes, and mm-hmm. there was a few moments where I'm like, this person had the audacity to return this. Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I worked, one of the jobs I've worked at in the past few years was for a startup, and so we would, you know, sometimes, even though, yeah, like, I'm the director of merchandising, but sometimes, like, we got to get in there and, like, help everywhere someone needs help, right? And so a lot of times my team and I would work on processing returns and the stuff I would see, I was like, these people are animals, except animals wouldn't do this. (laughs) Yeah, if I have to guess what part of the body the mark came from, I'm like, no, thank you. Yeah, no, no, don't want to know. (laughs) No, my triggered some sort of rabbit hole in my mind that I did not plan on going down today. Oh my gosh, I know, I know. Yeah, there's I've I've opened some pretty gnarly return packages, which you know, one of my favorite brands out there is called Big Bud Press. And when you buy something from them, they send this really long it's like a card that comes with your with your purchase and it's like all these rules like, hey, don't be a jerk fold it up, don't eat it, eat with it on, and then pack it up, like, button it, you know, don't jam it in the bag. And I was like, the first time it happened, I was like, I just cannot believe that they have to spell this out for people. And then I processed a bunch of returns at my job, and I was like, oh, yeah, I get it. Like, 90% of people are doing that. So gross and rude. Like, the transparency, I love it. It's like, hey, if you roll this up in a ball – then we're going to have to put it aside and steam it. And that costs us money and time. And then we can't get it out to someone else. And, you know, if you spray perfume all over yourself while you're wearing this and then return it, we can't sell it. Like those kinds of things seem really obvious, but like a lot of other things that you and I are talking about right now, like they're not. What surprised me was off the deodorant marks. And I'm like, why are there so 
many like marks on these clothes. I don't get it. And then I, as I was changing that day, I looked at my shirt and I'm like, it's just from trying it on. That is so crazy mm-hmm. that like there can be such bad residue just from throwing a garment on your body and just taking it off. Yeah, no, I've worked retail. It's gross. You know, I've been a serial returner in the past, but I would always, because I'm like, had that in my mind from working retail, I would always go in the bathroom and scrub my armpits before I tried (laughs) stuff on, just to like be polite. (laughs) No, and you don't know that stuff until you're in the other side of it. Yeah, yeah. Just trying to make life better for someone else. I know, I know, because I've had to be that person sitting there at a table with like a wet cloth trying to rub deodorant off of something that someone returned because no one will buy it with deodorant on it, mm-hmm. even though it's just deodorant and they're going to get their own deodorant on it. <laughs> All the clothes are going to get deodorant on them eventually. Right. <laughs> it's the scourge of our lives, I guess, deodorant. Hi, this is Aslan. I just had um, a couple things I realized I didn't share with you yesterday specifically about um, the – customer return Nordstrom boxes I was doing. So um, I was getting these boxes from the liquidator who is obviously getting returns from Nordstrom stores, but in the manifest, which I did have available to me, there was some of the items listed as unbranded. And I at first was really curious as to what it was, but they did give the um, UPC numbers for all of the items listed. And so when I went through and looked up the UPC numbers, it turns out they were all Nordstrom in-house brands. Um, So I thought that was really interesting that obviously Nordstrom, when liquidating their returns, didn't want resellers, I'm assuming didn't want resellers making money from their own house brand names. And then... um, I noticed, though, in the bigger palettes that other resellers get, that was not the case. They were getting the Nordstrom in-house brand. So I'm not sure what the contract must have been like for Nordstrom and the liquidators I was going through, but that was really shocking. You know, I thought maybe it's just they had, like, a non-disclosure or something, but the tags were actually cut out of the items listed as unbranded, which makes it practically worthless to a reseller, even though you know what the item is without that tag, it's just so hard to sell. And then um, the quality of items I was getting was probably like half and half. Half the items were either like new or new with tags, perfectly fine. And then the other half needed like small repairs. Maybe a button had broken off and had to sew a new button on or just a little snag. Um, And then for about every 50 items, there was probably one or two with, like, massive holes just beyond repair or salvage. So it was a mix, definitely a little bit of elbow grease had to go into these items besides just photographing, measuring, and listing. But for a half-and-half half split, that was about as good as I was expecting considering it was customer returns and you didn't exactly know the quality of items. So, yeah, I just wanted to add that because I thought maybe it might help the understanding. So thank you. Hope you have a great rest of your day. Bye. Thank you so much to Aslan for taking the time to talk to me. If you are involved in any kind of secondhand or reselling, whether it's a consignment shop, selling on Depop or Poshmark, 
selling vintage on Etsy, working at ThreadUp, working in a thrift store. I mean, you name it. I want to hear about it. Why? Well, because like secondhand is kind of the future of fashion. Trust me, all the retailers are thinking that. And it's the most sustainable way to shop. But I also know that there are a lot of issues because like I said earlier about Shopify, there aren't that many platforms for selling secondhand. So sellers are sort of like at the mercy of these big players and therefore, you know, they struggle with high fees and sort of feeling like no one is in their corner when it comes to dealing with customers, which brings me to my next call with Haley. So Haley reached out to me about working for a franchise that sold secondhand clothing. Imagine something very similar to Buffalo Exchange, Crossroads, or Plato's Closet. It's none of those, but it's the same kind of idea. She also used to be an avid seller on Poshmark, so she's going to talk about that too. And I have to warn you, we talked for two hours, so I had to really edit this down. And it was really, really hard to choose what to cut. So my name is Haley, and I have been kind of, I would say, dabbling in the resale industry for, I guess, what, seven years? Um, I started working at a resale shop in 2013, I believe. I worked at that retail shop for three years, and then I sold on Poshmark for a few years that overlapped. Um, and then now I just try to resell to my local shops overall, but with the pandemic, I am looking on getting back online to sell things. And I would say I generally focus in vintage now, but I definitely like began in just general resale. So when you were working in resale, you I mean, I, I have your email open in front of me here, <laughs> and you said yeah. you began in the dressing room, but you eventually became a buyer, which you did for a few years. I know that everybody who is listening to this is like, how does that work? Because a lot of times when you take your clothes in, it seems kind of arbitrary, <laughs> and I know that's yeah. not true. So why? Uh, I, would, I would say it's a little true, personally, but <laughs> I mean, I have so many questions about that, too, because I feel like you know, I'm always trying to game the system myself. So yeah. what is it, like, what is it in your mind as you're going through someone's stuff? Like, what are you looking for? Um, So the franchise I worked at, um, which I would say, I would kind of first by saying there's, like, tiers of resale. Um, mm-hmm. If you work in resale, you kind of know what they are. There's kind of, like, those mom and pop, like, consignment shops, which are kind of their own little world. But then there's the big franchises, mm-hmm. like Plato's Closet, Uptown Cheapskate, Clothes Mentor, um, kind of that, I think, Style Encore, but I think that's kind of Plato's Closet. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's kind of, like, that area of resale, um, which is then all, like, franchise, but still kind of tied to a corporation. And then there's Buffalo Exchange and Crossroads, which are just a corporation, um, kind of more like a target. Um, And so the franchise world is a little bit different because you have, like, weird computer systems. (laughs) (laughs) Um. And so a lot of times what's going through your mind is um, someone brings in their clothing. First, you're looking for smell, which is disgusting. Uh, um, I'm sure. I, 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 I haven't even thought yeah. of that, but that is appalling. <laughs> um, yes. So first, uh, you're hoping um, it doesn't smell like anything. Uh, the most common was smoke. Um, smoke mm-hmm. odors were common. Um, weed, occasionally. Well, clothes would really reek of weed. Um, occasionally they would smell like EO because they're supposed to launder these right before you bring them in. Just like an FYI for anyone listening who doesn't know this, none of these shops launder your clothes. None of them Matt, do it. 
I'm glad you're saying that because I know that, but I have gotten into like semi squabbles with friends in the past over this. I'm like, no, there's not a big washing machine in the back. Like this is it. No. <laughs> if you are going to a high end vintage shop, they might wash them. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you are going to, like I said, when these franchise are like a Buffalo Exchange or Crossroads, they are not washing the clothing. They ask that you bring it freshly laundered. Okay. Um, and we might occasionally wash an item. If something came in that smelled like smoke but was, like, awesome, mm-hmm. we might take it and, wa- and like, what is the manager might take it home and wash it. Oh, wow. Um, but I would okay. say that was fairly not frequent. But, like I, like I said, smoke was most common. Um, cat pee. Oh, that um, is bad. That is bad. Yeah, and actual, like, I would guess human urine definitely was a factor there. Um, and so, yeah, you're, you're first smelling, um, and you're still, as a buyer, at least at my place, you're required to still go to the clothing, even if it smells bad, um, out of, like, respect for the customer. I don't know. It's like the whole the customer is always right. And so if the customer brings you pea-soaked clothing, I guess you still have to go through it. I don't know. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, first thing was smell. And then um, amount really impacted things for me. Uh-huh. Um, like, if someone brought in eight trash bags of clothing, or not even eight, if someone brought in two trash bags of clothing, I was already not pleased. Oh, I hate that. I mean, even – on the customer side, I'm like, what are you doing? Like, that's not fair to everyone else that's here. And as soon as I see, like, I felt like the most clothing resale I've ever done was when I was living in Portland because we had, like, Buffalo Exchange, we had Crossroads, yeah. some local places. And what you would see is people coming in with, like, five Ikea bags. That's what I would always see are yep. Ikea bags. And it's just, like, they're not going to buy all that from you. No, um. And it's also a really bad game to play because depending on the cash flow of the place, we might have an item limit we can take from a buy. Oh, um, I've always wondered about that. I would say it's not – I would say that's when there's bad cash flow. So the place that I worked at was always on the cusp of, like, going under <laughs> for the whole for three years I was there. Um, it was never profitable, I think, the whole three years that I worked there. Um and part of that was we were in a shopping mall that was, like, dying where, you know, like, all the stores start to, like, empty out and then the big mm-hmm. box retailers leave. And so mm-hmm. that's just, like, kind of where we were. So the only, like, foot traffic we were getting was from, like, people going to, like, dentist appointments. Oh, um, wow. That's extra depressing. I have wondered yeah. about that, though. Like, because I was assuming and I was, like, trying to think of how to phrase it. Like, there would be a ceiling on how much you're supposed to buy every day. Or is, like, yeah. someone giving you a goal, like, hey, you need to try to buy 100 things today or something like that? No. So where I worked, we never had quotas like that. But when cash would start to get scarce, they would say, um, don't buy anything. Oh, my God. Why you? I had um, so, that possibility that you would come in and it would be a waste yeah. of time. Wow. Yeah, so if you come in when there's low cash flow, um, so, like, the keyword where I worked was when someone would call in and they would say, hey, like, I'm going to bring in stuff, like, what's the wait time, or what are you buying? The code word, if we were out of cash, was we're being really, really, really picky right now. Mm. Yeah, that sounds about right. Um, and so if you call and they say they're being really picky right now, they are not going to take anything and maybe don't waste your time. That's um, Unless you're, like, Bringing in, like, Lululemon or um, I'm trying to think what else, like, Uniqlo, I guess, maybe. 
Um, oh, I don't know what would be, like, really high. Like, if you're bringing in really high-demand items that we know we can turn, mm-hmm. we'll happily take them, even in, like, those cash flow spots. Because if, that, if you bring in the Lulu Lemon, you know you're going to pay, what, the 30%-ish that they pay. Um, and then you know you're going to get that 70% back um, within, like, the week. So it seems like... I mean, when I take stuff in, I'm always, I always have this sort of like curatorial eye about it. Like, what do I think people would want to buy? It seems like you need to come in with that kind of mindset. Like you can't just throw everything you cleaned out of your closet into a bag because it's not going to work out. Yeah. The only, the only reason I would maybe throw in some like dumpier items is it makes your better items look better. (laughs) I mean, that's interesting. That's interesting to think about. Um, Because a lot of times I don't want to return a no-buy, which is what they're always called when we don't buy anything. Um, Uh I don't want to tell a customer we took nothing. Um, And because we were going under the whole time I worked there, (laughs) I was having to get – like, there were were days where every buy was a no-buy. And so I was just, like, hoping that the customer wouldn't, like, get angry with me. Um, Or it was, like, me taking three items out of, like, probably, like, 70 um, mm-hmm. Because, like I said, we had these caps, um, which was always so frustrating because it would be like, you can only buy five items from any buy, or you can only buy three items from any buy. Um, and then wow. that's always really, like, hard to work with. Yeah. Um, and and you can't tell the customer that. Like, Of course not. Of course not. Customers would get so mad because, um, like, the franchise I worked in, it was in the Burbs. And, like, so you would have, like, really privileged, like, soccer moms coming in and, like, screaming at you because you weren't taking their clothing that's been in a closet for a decade. I had a woman, a grown woman, actually stomp her foot at me when I didn't take anything. And I was really lucky and I had a good manager. And if somebody, like, because I don't know how frequently we'd get yelled at, but it was, like, frequently-ish enough um, (laughs) that... Like, I had a manager that was really awesome, and you could call her, and she would talk to the customer and tell them she had, they have to leave the store and shouldn't ever come back. That's great. I have those are the best managers. Yes. <laughs> um, both my managers are like that. Um, I had two over my time there, and both of them, like, didn't make us take it. Like, that level of abuse. Like, we maybe had to take other levels of abuse, but if we were being yelled at. Because the thing about these resale shops is we – we constantly have enough stuff to buy. There is never a point in time where we're like, oh, no, we're low on inventory. Uh, it doesn't happen, so you can really kind of afford to drive off those really crappy customers. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. That makes sense. Especially because this type of customer that's going to yell at you for taking nothing is also the type of customer that's not going to buy anything from the shop. <laughs> of course, right? Well, so that brings me to a question I have, which is, in your experience, you know, there's this whole thing, like, you get more in trade than you do in cash, Right. Do more people take cash versus trade or vice versa? Yes, more people take cash for sure. Uh, I would tell you if you shop at the store, always take trade. It's a way better deal. The other way these shops will try to get you to shop in the shop, um, Buffalo Exchange requires you to stay in the shop, but I think almost all the rest let you drop off your stuff. At least at my shop, we advertise that you got put to the front line if you stayed in the store while you shopped. Oh, wow. And if you dropped it off, you went to, you were at the, like, you were behind anybody else who might come in and stay in the store. That makes sense. I mean, that's a really good idea. I had never even thought of that. Like I said, I worked at a franchise, so I don't know how standardized it is. Um, mm-hmm. But that was my experience at my franchise, is that we did boost, com- like, boost people who, like, 
stayed in store because um, you were you were hoping they would stay in store and they would shop around. You were not hoping they would stay in store and stand over you while you look through the people thing. <laughs> now let's get into my next question because I've noticed some people have this strategy where they like are going to stand there and like try to chat up the person in hopes of getting them to buy stuff. Is that super annoying to you? Um, it depends on the person. <laughs> As always, right? Um, I didn't mind it. Sometimes you can tell they're trying to angle you to buy more things. Um, and when they could, when they, when I could tell that was what was happening, I like probably would take less. I, I, but I'm also like kind of <laughs> jerk. <laughs> um, like what was so great about being a buyer at a retailer like that is you're in one of the rare positions where you have some power in this relationship. Yeah. Um, and so like I feel like a lot of us like took that power and, like, put our claws in it and was like, this is how I can get out, like, my aggressions at customers is by, like, pricing their things low or not taking anything or, I don't know, you could, like, punish the customer for being bad um, in this position. Like, when I worked dressing rooms, I just had to take it. Right, right. Of course you had to take it, yeah. So do you have, like, tips for people who want to take their stuff into a resale store? like what they should do for best results? I would say for best results, never take in more than one blue Ikea bag at a time. I love that. Um, also, probably don't bring in like four items. Because <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> you bring in with, enough, with, basically, right? Bring in enough because I have to enter you in my system. That takes time. And then a lot of times when people are only bringing in four items without even putting them in the system, I can tell I don't want them. So I have to still put them in the system. Yeah, that's annoying. Um, I get that. And so it's just like it's a big it's a big waste of time if you only have four items. And then I'll give you an offer of what like a dollar seventy five for one item. Like <laughs> I don't know, it's not worth your time either. Um, right. And right. Uh, and like like I said, like once once you get over that one IKEA bag, I would say like you're starting to get into a world that I don't want to go through your things anymore. Um, and I'm like of looking at because because a lot of these are duplicates a lot of mm-hmm. them I my store took men's clothing as well which is a little bit less like often like frequent um mm-hmm. and so like I, I'm sick of looking at your men's like like slacks that <laughs> all look the same I'm sick of looking at your men's shirts because usually these really big buys would include men's stuff and then it would be like a bunch of stuff that I can tell hasn't been in the mall because we say have it in the mall in like the last year or two mm-hmm. uh, and this is all stuff I can tell hasn't been in the malls in decades and not in a cool fun vintage way right um, and that's always how those big buys were um, or you could sometimes tell you're going through the belongings of someone who was like recently passed mm-hmm. um, they just like always sucked those buys always suck so if you bring in a ton of stuff you're going to get like like diminishing returns. Um, right, right. That makes sense. That makes sense. And launder your stuff. Uh, and <laughs> for bonus, maybe like throw in, I don't want to say dryer sheet because those are disposable, but like if you make your stuff smell nice, mm-hmm. like not just like not smell like anything, but like if they smell like they've been laundered, that just like gives me peace of mind. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that makes sense to me. You know, it's like marketing oh. sort of for your clothing. <laughs> Yeah, and then don't ever bring it in a trash bag. If you bring it in a trash bag, you're telling me you think your clothing is trash. Amen. I totally agree with that. When I see the people come into, like, the Buffalo Exchange or wherever with the garbage bag, I'm like, oh, that's not going to be good. That's just yeah. like pilly leggings or something. Um, 
if you have higher-end retail bags sitting around, put them in that. Like, put them in your Nordstrom's bag, in your Vera Bradley bag. Fold them neatly and put them in, like, a high-end, like, bag you would get at one of those shops. Like, come in with a bag from a shop that is on their brand list. For me personally, when I sell now, because, uh, so I live by the one blue Ikea bag rule, but I do the one with a zipper and that has shoulder straps, so it's not as heavy. <laughs> um, and I'm in Seattle, so then it also doesn't get rain on it, but I would say yes, never more than one blue Ikea bag. I mean, I, um, I believe that so much for, not just for yourself, but for the people who are also there to sell your clothes. It's really annoying. Yeah. I don't know if dressing cute impacts. When I was a buyer, it, it didn't, matter to me. I don't think I really paid attention to how people are dressed, but like I dress cute when I go and sell, so that makes no sense. Um, <laughs> I mean, I do it. too. I just I... my sweat. Because <laughs> um, like when I think about it, I can't actually picture like a single customer that I ever had outfit. <laughs> but you never know, you might get someone who is going to be swayed by that. So I don't think it hurts. Yeah, I don't think it hurts. And like for me, since I'm selling usually like kind of off kilter vintage i try to show how i make my off kilter vintage cute mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah um so like i don't know so that way they like don't come across these like weird paisley shirts and they're like oh god what do i do with that and i'm like oh you just put it with a nice jean actually i don't wear jeans well so like a skirt i don't know um <laughs> i also don't wear jeans i just wanted to get that in <laughs> yeah i i have yeah i one of my coworkers saw me in jeans like before the pandemic and he's like i don't know if i've ever seen you in jeans and i'm like i've worked here like two years <laughs> <laughs> oh another random tip before you bring in your pants to like a consignment shop check the crotch for period stains because we're required to and it'll be less embarrassing for you oh my god seriously everybody and, like, yeah, I would have to figure out how to subtly in front of a customer look down into the crotch of their jeans. <laughs> I, I remember, like, that always, like, giving me anxiety when someone would be, like, staring and talking to me and I had, like, a pile of jeans um, that, like, I knew I maybe wanted to take. And I'm, like, I'm going to have to, in front of this customer while talking to them, look into the crotch of every single pair of these jeans. <laughs> Casually. <laughs> Just like, yeah, casually. And then I'm going to put some of them back in the no pile. <laughs> and you know what I would say? I mean, I'm not an avid pants wearer. In fact, I almost never wear pants except to like to bed or to work out. And I will tell you this. There's way more period stains in your pants than you know. Check them all yeah. before you take them. <laughs> Check them all. I like distinctly remember that and doing resale uh, is... It's like the, yeah, the half thing pulls in the crotch of a jean, like a jean there's black in front of a customer. And then, like, <laughs> be, like, worrying that they were going to ask me what I'm doing. Because, <laughs> like, you don't want to say, but, like, now everybody who hears this will know that that's what you're doing. So that's good. Everybody check, check your pants. And then the other thing that I think people don't know about um, resale shops, I'm hoping it's changed, but during my training – um, I remember them training us to tell larger women that we were interested in their handbags if they came in and asked about buying, and that always felt really icky. I didn't do uh, it. I, I've never but heard like, there, Fat phobia is, like, well and alive in resale. Um, oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. I mean, now that we're talking about it and I think about, like, the resale stores that I've gone to, yeah. I haven't seen larger size clothing. Yeah, and if you see, so, like, for example, in our shop, the extra small was probably two racks. 
the smalls were four, the mediums were six, and then the large, extra large, and extra, extra large were like one rack. That's crazy. And, yeah, when you're training, you're told, like, if a larger woman comes in and asks about selling, um, tell her that we would love to see your shoes and handbags. And I was like, I am not going to tell someone that. Like, that is horrifying. That is horrifying. Um, I would love to know if more people, if other places do that. I'm going to ask. Yeah. And the other thing, too, that was interesting about that is we would have these monthly trend update videos we'd have to watch for our training or quarterly. I can't remember. Um, and one quarter, they were kind of like, like plus sizes in. Start buying all the plus size you can. <laughs> and I was like, what the heck? Um, yeah. so I would guess they must have phased, like, the, like, not taking plus size and being, like, fat phobic out of their training. Um, mm-hmm. just because of that. But I, like, was pretty horrified. Like, I remember being in the training room, um, in the office and, like, watching these training videos and feeling really horrified. I definitely think some items are haunted. I didn't believe in ghosts until I worked resale. (laughs) And then I had, like, too many creepy experiences in the store by myself at night that, like, I can't explain. And I was talking with a few of my coworkers, like, a few years later, and they all had similar experience. And so, I don't know. I I think resale can be kind of haunted sometimes. I mean, I love that. I believe it. I bet it's weird in there in the store at night when it's closed. There was this corner where, like, shoes would like fly off the shelf like just occasionally and randomly um, and you would be by there and they're like by yourself and you would see it move and you're like that's like not natural um and so like, I I don't know like I didn't believe in ghosts until I worked resale and then I had like too many weird experiences in the shop but also like the fact that you're thinking like I would say probably once a week I was going through someone who like had passed like their thing oh I'm sure I'm sure I totally have been um, online at Buffalo Exchange and the people ahead of me were selling someone's deceased clothing yeah creepy and then like for us because the store was going under it transferred ownership midway in my time there um and it was interesting because the second set of owners were clearly more concerned about capital than the first set uh because all of a sudden we started like opening and closing by ourselves which is really dangerous with these shops because you have a bunch of cash on hand right yeah yeah ours like we didn't have a safe um wow that's crazy like Literally at night, we would put the money in a bag, <laughs> and we would put it in the men's jackets. What? Like on, like a, on a hanger? No, on yeah. a hanger. We would put it on a hanger. We would, like, kind of, like, and then we would, like, smush that hanger into the men's jackets. Oh, my God. That is crazy. Because um, one time, somebody forgot to retrieve it in the morning. Um, <laughs> and luckily, the customer who found it was really honest. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, but I always thought that was, like, so funny. Like, when they when they were, like, showing me how to close the shop, and they're like, so we put all the money from the cash registers in a bag, and we put it over here. So there were, like, nights where it would be, like, thousands of dollars just, like, chilling out in the men's coats. Crazy. That is insane. Uh, <laughs> and I, I would say that, like, I think my shop was maybe jankier than most, but I'm, like, not positive about that. All right, so you also have sold a lot on Poshmark, and I know you haven't for a while. And you said something interesting in your email to me, which is that you thought that Poshmark had been changed a lot by its VC backers with their Series yeah. E funding in 2017. And I would 100% agree with you on that. Like, I've seen a change there. Yeah. What, what have you seen? Um. So, like, when you first got on Poshmark – 
Uh, or at least like when I did, it wasn't, it, it was just, it was friendlier to the seller um, in some ways. In some ways, I actually like what Poshmark's done. Um, so like you uploaded pictures on your phone when it was new and you didn't have all these different like taggings and keywordings you had to do. Mm -hmm. Um, And you kind of just, like, posted it, and then the way I would strategize selling is I would share a ton of people's items, like, indiscriminately, because it would make them maybe look at your closet. That's That's really smart. And so that's kind of what I did when I was on Poshmark. And I probably, over my years, had, like, six or seven um, conflicts. I forget the wording that they put for it. Um, but there was a point where it just felt like it really shifted in, like, who held the power there. Mm-hmm. Um, because, like, I had not, for, like, the first few years I was on there, ever had a case that I didn't win <laughs> as a seller. Because, like, I was a reputable seller. Right. Um, and then all of a sudden something shifted, and I would lose every single case, even when the customer was very blatantly lying. Um, and then the other thing they did was with the offer features that I think made it way less buyer-friendly. Um, I mean, seller-friendly and more buyer-friendly. The customer can make an offer and you can negotiate whatever. But now you're, it's almost like as a seller, you're expected to make an offer to every single person who likes an item. Right. Um, I would agree with that. And, I mean, I don't know if this was happening back then, but the offers that people make on the stuff you're selling are ridiculous. Yeah. And I can't figure out what's supposed to go on there. I would always get mystified when people would offer me, like, three dollars because I'm like you know I'm only getting 25 cents of that and that's like not worth my time yeah I feel that too like people being just so bizarre also I feel like when Poshmark opened up to men you started getting like those like sketchy like can I see a picture of on your body or like yeah like can I see them on your feet where it's just kind of like gross um and like felt like less of a safe space um and then mm-hmm. also it just became kind of harder to navigate once they started adding on all those categories i went from loving selling on there to like hating it i feel like in like the span of like five months it's just i mean there are a lot of things that i hate about it that i find really really annoying one is just like the constant notifications of these like weird parties yeah. Have you ever used these like par- this like party system? So I did. Um, so there's now more parties than there used to be. There used to only be three, and I would use the evening party because I knew a bunch of people would be online, and that's when I would try to share people's items. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, obviously, if this was successful for me at all, but basically, I would like pop in front of the TV and just like blindly share things while I like watched an episode of something, and that was kind of what I would do. And I would do it during these party times because I would assume that Poshmark chose those times because they're higher traffic hours. Right, that makes sense to me. I mean, they have so many parties now, and they're yeah. really specific. It'll be like tank top parties, and you're like, what? Why? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, and that's kind of what they were themed when I was on there, but I've definitely noticed in recent years there's just, like, more a day. It was when they rolled out their boutique nonsense. Okay. That was when I was done. Will you explain this a little bit for people who might not know what that is? Um, so Poshmark, which is, like, an interesting idea, but basically Poshmark rolled out this program where I can't remember if you could buy it from Poshmark. I think you could where you could buy brand new clothing and then list it on your closet and, like, kind of sell it like it was, like, your own boutique that you were running out of your garage or whatever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they were 
like encouraging you to buy, I guess it's that like for me, one of my passions about resale is sustainability. And they were basically encouraging you to do like the nonsense that like when Buffalo Exchange buys new things to try to pass as like sold things. And that's kind of what I felt they were doing with this like weird move. Um, and it really like, I don't know. I, I then felt like I couldn't trust if anything I was buying off Poshmark was resale anymore. Like, like right. actual resale. Well, and I do think that it has changed a lot because I feel like I encounter a lot more new stuff on there. Yeah. Like, like Every once in a while, I'll sell something that is brand new because, like, a vendor gifted it to me or, like, yeah. I couldn't return it, that kind of thing. It was, like, final sale. But that's, like, very few and far between. But there are people who have so much new stuff. And I know, yeah, I mean, it's all kinds of stuff. People buying returns from Amazon and other places like that or, like, literally going out to, like, TJ Maxx and, like, clearing the clearance rack and selling it. Yeah. Like, it's weird. It's, like, incentivizing people to yep. sell new stuff. And I, I don't like that, but like goes against everything that I believe Same. in, you know? Yeah. It went from feeling less like capitalism to exactly like capitalism. Yeah. Yeah. Like it felt like more like a community sort of like, Hey, yeah. we're, like, we're all like eco-conscious and like looking for bargains and, and we care about clothes and that kind of stuff. And literally now brands like, like for example, free people, Sells on Poshmark their own oh my God, brand new stuff. Yes, yeah, I've been seeing it. Wow, all oh, over yucky. Instagram. I know, I know, because some of the sellers who are like majorly making a living off of Poshmark are like literally these brands are selling yeah. brand new stuff for almost nothing because they're just yeah. trying to recoup some expenses. I can't sell stuff that cheap. Yeah, and I mean it's it's. I know it's not just free people, but it's brands that are popular on Poshmark. And I'm assuming that Poshmark has gone to them to encourage yeah. them to come and sell, you know? I would agree. I mean, Poshmark keeps, like, raising round after round of funding. When you look at their financial history, it tells, like, a very clear story of, like, capitalism. Um, <laughs> and it's really sad. Haley did reach out to me a couple of weeks ago after the episodes with Jess's experiences at Buffalo Exchange. And she told me this. One thing we didn't cover that I realized was our software. In the software, we would input the brand, size, and item type, and it would spit out three prices to choose from. It would also help us see what brands or item types aren't selling and helped inform our buying decisions. So this is like a lot different than what Jess was working with at Buffalo Exchange, like way more technology, it seems like. I have to say that my inner nerd is really excited about this software because I love that kind of stuff. Like, ask any of my former coworkers. I just love a good algorithm. I just love data. <laughs> um, thank you so much to Haley for literally talking to me for two hours about all kinds of stuff. If you have something to contribute to the conversation, you know, it could be thoughts, questions, more info, please reach out. Your stories, your personal stories as consumers, workers, people who wear clothing, make clothing, sell clothing, like clothing, your experiences with the buying and selling of stuff. These personal stories are, I mean, they are political at their core. And sharing these stories helps all of us shape what we do next. So please reach out. You can call the hotline at 717-925-7417 
There's also the old-fashioned way via email at clotheshorsepodcast at gmail.com. Or you can DM me on Instagram at clotheshorsepodcast. But be advised that I might ask you to call on the hotline because sometimes it's just easier to share your message that way. I would rather hear your voice say it than have to read it out loud. (laughs) Okay, well, this concludes our first ever Close Horse Hotline episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. For one, I love hearing from all of you because you know what? My cats are getting really tired of hearing me rant about consumerism and capitalism. But also, I really truly believe that we are building a community of like-minded, passionate people. And that community is creating a movement. And that movement will turn into actual real change in terms of how we buy, what we buy, who sells us stuff, who doesn't get to sell us stuff anymore, and everything else. It's it's easy to feel alone right now, but there's power in numbers. And guess what? We're getting the numbers together right now. Tell your friends, tell your family, because we're going to change the world together. Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse. If you like what you're hearing, you know what I'm going to say. Please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends. Also, don't forget, this month only, if you write a review, I will send you an Anti-Brunch Society pin and membership card. You got to do it. It's good for the algorithm, I hear. (laughs) Plus, I really appreciate it. Thank you to everyone who has shared our content or recommended us on Instagram. I love it. If you ever want me to share a source for the statistics that I provide here or on Instagram, please get in touch. As I've said before, I have the world's biggest bookmark folder. In fact, I'm thinking I need to create some subfolders within that folder because scrolling through it now, it like annoys me. It's just so long. (laughs) And while I'm not a journalist, I am very committed to providing all of you with accurate, true facts and information. So I like to double check things and make sure it's all in the up and up before I share it. If you want to meet other Close Horse listeners, and who wouldn't want to, right? Because you're all awesome. Join the Close Horsing Around Facebook group, and I'll share a link in the show notes. Also, as I mentioned in the last episode, I'm thinking about this idea of monthly, like, clothes horse virtual hangouts, you know, where we could hang out and just talk about what's on our minds and what we're up to. I could answer some questions, you know, just hanging out, right? Because it's a weird, lonely time. Please let me know what you think of that idea. And if you have any, like, tech advice around it, Meg of Scavenger Vintage suggested Discord, I would love to hear all of your thoughts on that. And don't forget to check out the department, which, as you know, I co-host with my friend Kim. We talk about trends, taste, stories where people throw up from eating gross candy, you know, all the normal things, right? We released a bonus third episode about Girl Boss just a few days ago, and it was amazingly therapeutic for me. <laughs> I talked about some feelings I've never really said out loud before, which felt wild to me, but I think was good. Uh, We have a new episode coming soon about all the things the millennials have allegedly killed. No, it's not a true crime podcast, or is it? 
Thanks, as always, to Justin Travis White for our music and audio support. Bye. Bye.